Welcome to episode 22 of the Payments Show podcast. My name is Satwant Full, and today I will be speaking to Jimmy Fong, who is the Chief Commercial Officer at Seon. Seon provides detection tools and solutions to help businesses reduce the costs, time, and challenges faced due to fraud. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome to the show. Oh, delighted to be here, Satwant. Thank you for inviting me. No problems at all. Where are you in the world before we kick off? Oh, terrible place. Uh, so the very south of Italy in Apulia. Yeah, I'm struggling from there in this COVID time. <laughs> oh, nice. The joys of startup life. You get to work in really cool places. <laughs> yeah, we're normally, actually, we're normally in pretty cool places. We're in London, Soho normally, and then twinned with Budapest in Hungary. So not terrible places, but it just randomly I spend the summer out here. My family appreciates a little bit of uh, downtime over here. I've seen you strategically pick the points of great food and great coffee and wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I have to come. I have to come round for dinner one day. <laughs> Very welcome. If you're if you're a fan of fresh seafood, then this little town is uh, where it's at. Excellent, good stuff. Well, Jimmy, look, like I said, thanks so much for coming on. I've got a lot of questions prepped for you, so really looking forward to our conversation. So, Jimmy, you're the chief commercial officer at Seon. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yeah, spot on. And so, as you mentioned before, based out of Soho in London and Budapest in Hungary, Seon helps online businesses reduce the cost, time and challenges faced due to fraud. You help companies from everything from small e-commerce startups all the way to quite large financial companies so that you can basically take the security headache away from businesses and so that they can get on with growing and scaling their businesses. You've even been called the stripe of fraud prevention. That's a big call. Really looking forward to digging into that more deeply as we carry on. It'd be great to understand how Sion started and what your story is there, because I know looking through your history, you've seemed to have been always ahead of the curve in payments. You worked at a company that was bought by Ingenico, then you worked for another company called Inauth that was bought by American Express and also Cybersource, which was bought by Visa. So it seems as somebody that is always one step ahead of what's happening. So let's hear your story, why Seon exists and just a bit of your background. Yeah, cool. So anyone that knows me, Satwan, knows that I'm pretty nerdy when it comes to tech and uh, I'm pretty particular about tech. So that probably explains kind of, I guess I'm a classic early adopter in that sense. Maybe to start off with, I guess a little bit kind of from my background. So I kind of landed in payments and kind of fraud e-com space just at the start of the last financial crisis. I was really lucky. I was one of the early EMEA employees into Cybersource, which back in 2007, Cybersource is a payment gateway fraud company out of Mountain View, California, set up in the UK a few years before I joined and was seen as, seen as the real kind of cutting edge of e-com. So a lot of what they preached and kind of shared in terms of best practice for how you conduct safe online transactions clearly coincided with the back end of 2005-2006 as e-com blew up in EMEA, right? That was an unbelievable bedrock. And that was just by luck that I joined at that time. And they were always at that kind of quite disruptive thinking and also challenging the way that online business should be done. So that was kind of my entry point. And as you mentioned there, they, they did so well. They were very fortunate. They were acquired by Visa as part of a $2 billion cash acquisition. Everyone was pretty chuffed from that adventure there. Then I was approached by one of our partners at the stage, a company called Global Collect. So a Dutch company based out of Amsterdam. They were a partner of CyberSources. I was approached to kind of help join their commercial team to look after kind of travel retail business out there. Those guys were really good education into non-card payment based methods. So 
you kind of learn as you deal with merchants around the world that different parts of the world have extremely different preferences to how they want to pay. Germany is a classic example where credit facilities are really low and it's cultural. The average young German, very rarely, in contrast to the UK, uses credit. So they'd rather pay with money, funds they actually have in their account. So their landscape, payment landscape is so different. But that also means their risk appetite is different because the mechanisms of payment mean there are no chargebacks, but there's more friendly fraud, for example. So Global Collect was an incredible experience learning about the different payment cultures around the world. You know, APAC and back then Latin America was blooming as well. And then North Africa was going a bit crazy. So it was cool learning about some funky payment methods. They were fortunate to do really well and they were eventually acquired by Ingenical Payment Services, very large French multi-international. Any listener here will see Ingenical whenever you next, when you can pay for something in person, you'll see the little point of sale is typically Ingenical. They have like a crazy market share of points and sale chip and pin machines, but they're doing more and more online, clearly. And laterally, in-off technology out of Venice Beach. Uh, So uh, again, another terrible place to work, Venice Beach, uh, of course. And uh, (laughs) these guys, um, they focused on a really nerdy problem called device authentication. It was really cool because it was it was a really point solution, but it was really interesting for banks for authentication. You'll all know it because when you authenticate using a transaction, increasingly now you get 2FA authentication via your mobile asking you, hey, Satwan, did you just do the transaction? Yes or no? So that's what Inoff played in. In three years, they became pretty much the world leader in device fingerprinting. They did so well, they were acquired by American Express. So I've been, I've been super lucky to be at fairly interesting technology plays that were kind of market validated and then quite quickly gobbled up. But like any startup guy, that's probably why I'm now sitting at an even earlier stage company. That's why I'm here today. (laughs) And your own, and your own company, right? Uh, No, so I was brought in. So I'll give you a bit of backstory there. And actually, this is actually quite a cool origin story. Now, a lot of my close friends know this and actually put a Medium post up on this for my kind of wider network. But they asked the question as well. Hey, cool move. Who is Seon? Was the question I got <laughs> about five months ago when I made the move. So this is my earliest stage venture. So these guys are pre-Series A. They're seed funded. Seon's a Hungarian tech story, but only two and a bit years old, just two and a half years old operational live. They focus in on the same space, fraud and risk tech. But the actual origin story of me joining was kind of a bit, bit of a funny one, actually. I was actually due as my earnout was finishing at Inoff. I was due to start, and I guess it's something I'm not super proud of. It's the first time it's happened in my career. I was actually due to start off at another really cool venture, a Series A. It was funded by Microsoft. Just got Series A funding from Microsoft, a cybersec company based out of Tel Aviv. And so I was going to help commercial internationally for them. And they did something totally different. Having spent 13 years that one in the payments and fraud landscape in e-com, I guess I was a little bit jaded is the best way I'd describe it. For me, the areas of opportunity were more into cybersec, which is a little bit, it is much nerdier, much more detailed, much more technical, which I really enjoy. My brain just loves that kind of technical challenge. But <laughs> the issue with it is it's much more specialist as well. But I was looking forward to that challenge. So I was due to start on a Monday back in March, pre-COVID lockdown with this company, all excited and both parties were excited. And as a favor to my headhunter on the Thursday, it's a little bit of a backstory to this, but as a favor to a headhunter, I agreed while I was in London on that day to go meet a young co-founder. And my honest thing was to meet him for a beer for an hour and to spew on him of why his fraud space, which is e-com fraud, 
was so saturated, so undifferentiated, and so boring. <laughs> and so I was, I was, I was meeting him purely because I had the hour free. And uh, I was, I was, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. I was almost like, yeah, aiming to spew on him my 13 years there. That one thing led to another. And four and a half hours later, <laughs> we agreed that their approach was so fundamentally different from market that it completely excited me. And it's the reason why instead of starting at that other venture, over the weekend, I was board approved to join a CCO over at Seon. So a bit, a bit of a crazy story in itself. He must be a master salesman to convince you of that over a beer. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait till, wait till you meet the rest of the team, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, it was, well, I don't believe in fate. I'm the first one to say I totally don't believe in fate. It's a wider story, like with this. Earlier that day, uh, I was walking through Canary Wharf with the guy I was actually meeting with and actually walked through, I forgot the name of the Italian restaurant right off Canary Wharf, walked through to get from one bit to another, spotted the headhunter who had never met in person, but he had put some really cool uh, LinkedIn videos recently. And so he was actually, his face was very in my head. And uh, what passed him, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's a headhunter. And he was speaking to this young guy opposite him, which I automatically assumed, he was, you know, like early 20s guy, I automatically assumed was uh, interviewing for a job or something. It turned out he was the co-founder and uh, CEO. <laughs> and it's that crazy, you know, like coincidence. That one, like I passed them earlier that day out of the whole of London. And then he gave me a call up just coincidentally to see if I was in town. So yeah, it's kind of a... That's a great story. I love that. Maybe not a coincidence. Maybe someone's <laughs> looking after you. That's great. Okay, well, I totally understand the context now. So before we move on to a whole bunch of topics that I'd love to discuss with you. I always like to ask the simple question. The audience for this podcast, business execs, sales directors, people that want to accept payments faster. In a nutshell, in a sentence or so, can you explain how does Sayon help businesses accept payments faster? Yeah, absolutely. In a nutshell, we're an evolution of fraud tech. There's been lots of great work done in the past, particularly around digital identity. So I think everyone acknowledges there's lots and lots of tech plays out there which are using a lot of that incredible data that most fraud tech companies have built up over the last 5, 10, 15 years for a lot of them. Effectively, they're telling you know, any business, hey, I've seen Satwant before in one of our other online transactions, whether he shopped on eBay before, whether he shopped on Nike. And that's useful. That's really good. Sam came to market because there was two points of feedback from merchants out there. Number one is... What one merchant deemed as risky was completely different in terms of risk tolerance to another, even within the same space. So one retailer to another retailer. That was number one. So it was very subjective, the value of that bureau information. And the second thing was the element that data was stale the moment it could be like a week past, and it was instantly stale, let alone for most of those examples, that we're talking about months of data or years of data. It was completely stale, so next to useless. So, so Seon, in one nutshell, came to market around real-time intelligence. So what we do, which is fairly unique, is we're assessing that person coming back, coming into your ecosystem, and we're telling you right there, right then, does that person have a social footprint? And our investment thesis as a startup is our technology tells you whether Satwant is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. Our thesis is genuine customers will all have some sort of social media footprint or messenger footprint. And fakies won't, quite simply. We're really focused as a startup on breaking the economics for pro-fraud rings because you can still go ahead and set up, if you wanted as a fraudster, Satwant's complete digital social footprint, if you wanted, but you cannot do it at scale. 
And that's where sound comes in as a, as a one sentence value prop. Yeah, that makes total sense. You see so many social profiles. Twitter is a classic where you'll see like 1278john at twitter.com and it's clearly they have like three followers or zero. <laughs> so yeah, that makes total sense. And maybe just to build on that, Satwan, I think the other good thing that we've had feedback from our customers is we're quite upfront. We're not doing anything that really smart fraud teams aren't doing already. Meaning when a transaction that they're looking at in real time hits a I'm not sure bucket and they have to do some review on it, good fraud managers anyways are always on their browser throwing up a control T new tab and popping in Satwan's full name into most of these networks as it is to see what comes up as well. So this is already happening. I guess another way that companies are looking at Sayon is one API to 25 plus networks in under a second. So it's almost like we're moving into a productivity space where risk managers do this, but they're doing it a heck of a lot quicker. For us, um, we'll talk more about this because we're not to our failing. We're not really a sales organization. We're more of a product-led organization in, in that sense. Sure. To that point, once data breaches and news stories around that started becoming mainstream over the past three to five years, I started regularly every three or four months, I would just type my name into Google, entering my email address and my mobile phone number regularly into Google to see what pops up. Thankfully, nothing really pops up too often, but I had one instance where I'd subscribed to a financial newsletter a couple of years ago. And when I entered my email address in to Google, it exposed their database. So it had my name, address, email, everything. The breach side of things is really making solutions like yours necessary as well. Completely. And and I think as a wider kind of comment, this is probably the era that most organizations, they've tried to fix it with the growth of digital identity, with what's known as the account takeover fraud. And it's kind of logical, right? As a startup, we're very conscious on how we message to the market. We've never been a fan of the kind of fear-based mentality that I think a lot of the fraud and risk tech world has gone down around doom and gloom and how terrible and unsafe the world is and this kind of message. Just personality-wise, I don't think it clicks with me. We almost think of this as like data breach fatigue. Now as consumers, every couple of days is just another news story. It's almost like we as consumers are just completely just goes over our head, right? In one year, out the other. So I think the next generation has just kind of accepted that if you intend to do any online business, that there's a very good chance that your stuff is floating around out there. It's either like already being sold in secondary or tertiary kind of dark markets, or it's sat in someone's server Good to go for when the time's right, when they can pop you in a script and chuck your name across all these e-tailers to see if it works. So this is kind of a given. I think the digital identity play is a good play, but clearly our investment thesis is there's a better play in terms of technology and how to handle this. So we don't get into the argument of whether it's valid or not or gray area. It's very binary with our tech. It's either yes or no, uh, true or false flag which from case studies we've done in our two and a half years, we've had some really, really impactful experience. There's no gray area in results. It's just, oh, this is cutting the legs of fraud because guess what? It makes economics non-workable from a fraud point of view. So we think that's a pretty cool story. But yeah, we would rather highlight the positives on this because these data breach things, it's not going to get better. It's getting worse. (laughs) And uh, every year, CIOs release more cybersec spend. Clearly something wrong is happening, right? (laughs) Yes, totally agree. 
identity is a whole other conversation. So maybe we'll do a follow-up episode on that someday. <laughs> um, but that's got some great insight there. So let's focus on, on the solution. I noticed that you've got two main product areas, so sale intelligence and the sense platform. It would be great if you could talk about those looking through the lens of the four main areas that you focus on. So e-commerce, travel and ticketing fraud is the second one. The third one is payment gateways. And you've got a, a bunch of industries sort of bunched together for your fourth category, which is banking, insurance, gaming, and online lending. And I'm guessing that's bunched together because the traits of securing all those are perhaps similar. A lot of listeners to the podcast will be in the e-commerce space. So maybe let's start with that. How do the two product areas that you offer help in the e-commerce world and reducing that fraud rate? Yeah, maybe if it's cool, I'll answer just as a slight segue with actually a question you asked at the very beginning, Satwan, as in to almost like as a startup, it's often cool to hear the origin story of what prompted that startup, what happened to the founders and why did they go down this idea? This will give you an insight into our product as well. So, so for us, Seon is started by two co-founders, Tamas and Benza. So two really good uni mates out of a really great university out of Budapest. And these guys in their last year of uni, so this was in mid-2016, just as a time check for everyone. <laughs> so mid-2016, in their last year of university, were majorly into crypto. Just at that time, that's when it kind of started to particularly take mainstream. It started to bubble up again. Their actual first idea was to build out for Central Europe the crypto exchange for CE. Um, and that's what they did. They actually launched with that, even while at the last bits of university. And immediately, they were one of the first to offer fiat currency exchange, so the ability to use card to buy crypto. And they opened themselves up to a world of pain in terms of fraud from day one. Within a couple of weeks, they were burning cash so fast, particularly around fraudulent transactions, that they were forced to go out to market and look for technologies that they can immediately incorporate to stem these attacks. And the guys that went out, did a ton of research, found some brilliant solutions. But the main issue they found was it would take weeks at best case scenario, sometimes on average months, to be able to close a deal commercially, integrate and get going. And they just didn't have the runway left to do so. So their story was they had to hack together a bunch of tools to instantly give them visibility into whether that interaction was a good one, a bad one, or one they had to take a closer look at. That's kind of what happened. They hacked together a set of tools. They got really, really great feedback from other crypto exchanges that they were interacting with, particularly around the region. And that region, I'm not sure if you, you know, but there's a high level of engineering base out there. So they're really, really tech savvy. But they're also very at the cutting edge of breaking security <laughs> as well. So, so that gives them like a really good insight into kind of mentality of their foe as well. So they got really good feedback from other crypto exchanges. And with that, they kind of got a lot of confidence to consider pivoting. And that's what they ended up doing. They pivoted completely as a startup to becoming Seon, which serviced these other, what we deem as high-risk merchants. So our origin story is very much around servicing the high-risk sector. And for us, the high-risk sector is almost the polar opposite of the way we describe it on our website. So the others, the kind of online gambling companies globally, the crypto exchanges, the micro, micro lending exchanges around the world, the new challenger bank fintechs, we classify as high-risk because once you've done something, generally it's real money that's gone out the other way and it's gone. Once you've done it, it's gone. And then... Working backwards and travel, we, we put in high risk. Obviously, COVID's 
had a pause on a lot of travel. And then things like payment gateways. And then e-com we finally arrive at, which was a traditional area. That's how I got started. How I cut my teeth in this kind of space was with an e-com. We find that actually one of the simplest because the challenges faced by those other high-risk guys tend to be, I mean, I think it's logical. It's kind of market-led. So, you know, where do fraudsters go? They go to where they can get money in the quickest most economic fashion possible. And so a lot of those high-risk sectors are those kind of main targets. And e-com gets a lot of media attention, but actually it's one of the easiest areas for technology to help with, funnily enough. So I think it's, a, it's always a good thing that our main portfolio is high-risk sectors. And then whenever we speak to increasingly more mainstream e-com, it's like a massive breath of fresh air. And we're talking about very traditional things we're able to help on. It's almost like reducing the manual review queue, Things like uh, reducing gift card, coupon abuse, bonus abuse, login attention for e-com. And, and for us, that one, that's like, a, that's like a much, much easier kind of <laughs> talking point rather than some of these really kind of out there, funky kind of fraud techniques we're hearing on the other spaces. So it's funny, we go the opposite way around whenever we talk about helping. That's great to hear because if you develop technologies and frameworks for that high-end fraud area, then... I suppose something like spending a hundred pounds or dollars fraudulently is a walk in the park. There's also like going back to your e-com thing, man, those guys have the luxury of time to deliver. They don't have instant fulfillment if you're talking about physical e-com, right? They've got all the time in the yeah. world compared to the guys which um, the biggest growth sector in COVID for us was esports. No surprise, right? Everyone's stuck at home and they just massively bumped up their activity. So we're really fortunate to work with some of the leading players there, but their risk vectors that they talk to us about, there's zero review time. They need a binary decision, yes or no, and it's instantaneous, you know, under a millisecond kind of response time. They don't want to impact the UX as well because it's so competitive out there for people's eyeball attention time that these guys are all metrics by not even the fraud loss, but more so by acquisition and loss of opportunity of acquisition. Whenever we're speaking to those sectors, if we almost reverse engineer the top points, e-com, even to some extent travel, it's a lot easier discussion topics. The other guys on the high-risk sector, they've really embedded our technology and that's allowed us to have hopefully intelligent conversations about risk and fraud and that kind of thing. The real-time thing was something that came up on a day-long online seminar that I attended for MasterCard about a month or so ago. One of the ladies who was running that session was saying that real-time payments means that the risk assessment window is getting smaller and you basically just confirm that with the online gaming. Yeah, and for me, the interest area, when I started in 2007, people were always looking and examining the interaction point at checkout. That's kind of what they talked about, the payment transaction, particularly the payments world. For us, the bulk of other sectors are not in that traditional space. Like we talked about, they're at any digital interaction is the way to think of our tech. And I think the next gen, the kind of young kids on the block tech providers, that's kind of what they mostly engage with on. Think about it like any interaction point whenever someone interacts on that brand site. The moment you land in, the better tech is able to derive some rich intelligence from just landing. So we talk about use cases like new applications, new registration. So this is even before all the way down at the checkout scenario. So the way I always think about it is the more you can tell from any interaction point, especially at the beginning of interaction, you should be able to derive using the right tech stack, 
some form of better decisioning rather than waiting all the way to the end. Then it also takes load off other tech stacks within your infrastructure. You know, if you're a traditional e-com, then you don't need to do the inventory part, the personalization part, because you're dealing with a bot, for instance. There's lots of efficiencies to be made. And, and I think the market's pretty well educated now. So there's decent enough movement in attitude from looking at risk management just in terms of loss of chargeback. That's like the, the, the kind of, I think, the worst metric to look at. Typically, if you're looking at that and that's your business requirement, then you're probably on fire <laughs> by that stage. And there's, a, there's a kind of very bad things happening in the rest of the business. So, yeah, we, we try and engage with people that are looking to optimize based on UX. And that's much more intelligent, I think, and a, and a, better, a better one for everyone. And typically, those are the projects that get green lighted as well from an exec point of view, because everyone wants to improve UX, everyone wants to create the better experience. And that all, guess what, leads into Rev and all this kind of stuff as well. I'd love to talk about that in more detail, actually, because user experience and customer experience are, are so key for conversion, first of all. So if your website sucks, then... <laughs> You've lost straight away. Another really interesting stat, again, from that MasterCard seminar, was a US survey. 60% of small businesses have a website and 28% of those sites were put up for less than $500. I'd imagine a lot of those cheap sites were WordPress sites made many years ago and probably full of holes and UX and CX, you can just forget about it. It's probably just a very functional page that just takes money, really. The website's probably just an online catalog rather than a website as we think of it today. So I'd love to talk about the UX and CX in more detail because you mentioned, again, on your site, you've got things like widgets, tools, and then also coming from your Sense platform. At the back end, it does things like device fingerprinting, and then your sale and intelligence tools, one-click fraud detection. It uses things like the email address, the IP address, and the customer's phone. So it'd be great to hear about UX and CX and then talk about maybe some of those details as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the world's moving more this way anyways. It's moving more into interoperability. So we always ask the question of why anyone should mold themselves to you, the vendor, the tech stack. It should be the other way, surely. I think this is just the classic when the founders are right out of university, 25, 26 now. That's what happens when the whole company evolves around their point of view is just a viewpoint of why wouldn't it be this way? This is the best practice of how modern online discovery and research into a complicated technology solution should exist. It should be out there. And it should be in a case where you get to choose and pick and play, not the other way around, where it's kind of like you like it or don't approach. So Seon from the start has all been about modular services, modular APIs. We have some customers that use us for everything. We have some customers use us for just one thing. And that's totally cool from that side. But I think a big differentiator, back to the origin story about what we call day one value, because the origin story was about getting up and running straight away, we really mean that. So rather uniquely, when we talk about that intelligence tool, so the data enrichment, the thing where you give us one data point, like an email address, and we'll tell you a bunch more info about it like the social footprint, if they're on all those kind of social networks around the world, then that's the sort of stuff we can give you back via, for example, like a Chrome extension. So our use case there is 
all these review teams around the world, which are super smart and they're, they're the real heroes of fraud prevention, these fraud managers who have a really unbelievably tough job and their dynamic is so tough because they're under pressure to prevent fraud. But at the same time, their own internal business is telling them not to turn away good revenue. So they're trying to measure against false positives there. And when they screw up, when they muck up, that's even worse because it's an outweighted response of like how much they let through versus, say, their department. So, so we, we at Seon, we're real champions behind that super hardworking, humble fraud manager. Seon's tool stack is an extension for them, first and foremost, not for the CIO or the CEO from a reporting dashboard point of view. It's purely for the actual pragmatic use of fraud managers to use right there, right then, meaning from non-hearing of Seon to actually understanding what we do. You can actually, we just released this about three weeks ago now, a self-serve of our intelligence tool. So literally no interaction from any commercial people at all. They find the technology out there and it matches the requirements. Free trials. You don't even have to bug your dev team. <laughs> you can literally, uh, if, as long as you've got ID permission to do so on your browser session, download a Chrome extension of Seon and it gives you real-time intelligence while you're reviewing transactions. You hover your little mouse over someone's email and boom, all this extra detail comes up that you didn't have before. We've had fortunate to have really good feedback that that's made an immediate difference to a lot of people. Clearly, um, we're available as APIs as well. So you can in- interject our technology at any digital interaction point. So classically, on landing on your website for initial registration, application, new account openings, all the way through to higher risk in, in quotation interactions. So a lot of our FIs use us for when you add a new payee, for example, or you do a higher value transfer. So you're pinging some money to Satwant, but it's above the average transaction. You can have our tech run in real time. All this stuff happens invisible to the consumer. So zero interaction, we're just invisible. But the cool thing is the business can make a smarter decision on whether to allow that interaction or not based off that. So it all gets reported back in under a second. So it shouldn't impact UX from that point of view. And then the last thing is for companies that want to, we also offer what's called our Sense platform. So that's an end-to-end machine learning platform. So the ability to do something and act on the info that you've just got from the intelligence tool and you're able to accept, reject, or review transactions. And then there's GUIs and all this kind of stuff out there. So again, I think the thing that's helped us, we've been really fortunate in two and a half years, we work with just over 5,000 merchants from a standing start and 98% of it's inbound into us. Uh, We're not a sales org, we're a product org in that sense. I think one of the big parts is everything's optimized for the fraud manager. So even the way you interact with our platform from a transaction search point of view, we don't have enterprise case management where someone gets their own review queue, et cetera. We, we actually view that as a slightly old school mentality. The type of companies that like using our tool, when they look at the transaction search, it appears almost like a Gmail inbox. We're actually using nods from B2C world of what we consider are the ways that the very best companies around the world are doing these things. So transaction search in our world looks more like an inbox, which is slicing and dicing, just like you do for a Google search or Gmail search facility. And we've been really lucky that the feedback has been pretty phenomenal from that side. So we're doubling down on trying to do things exceptionally different from how the market's done. And I think it's helped us stand apart for that. I won't go into tools too much, but in terms of tools, clearly from that side, they're designed to be lightweight so that from a scripting point of view, the JavaScript we employ for device fingerprinting and the SDKs we deploy are designed so that they're exceptionally lightweight. 
They have no impact on response times, but yet they still give you exceptionally powerful intel back is kind of the way we've built stuff from scratch. That's a huge advantage that I could be sat there and just deploy a Chrome extension and start using your tool. I don't need to have five people from IT go and talk to your sales reps for two months to start going. Yeah, and maybe it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I say everything from the way we're trying to do stuff is the opposite of how it has been done in the past. And when I say past, it's literally today. So one thing I always get peeved off at, like I buy SaaS products, you know, as we're growing the business, I have to buy SaaS products. Of course I do. But I get so frustrated when I hit the pricing tab and I see like a proxy page for a contact us or I hit the demo button and they insist on doing a discovery call. And it's like, I want instant gratification. <laughs> so, so, so we again, our thesis on this, we think that the way we're all being trained as everyday consumers ourselves, you know, we all consume Netflix and Spotify and man, we can't wait for like someone, you know, taking us through that bang journey. We want instant results. So we think that by going free trial, by going very low commitment, we're like Netflix and Spotify. We don't hold you to multi-year contracts. We have a 30-day notice and if it sucks, you should move. That's our philosophy. There's no value add for either of you then. We think that kind of approach is going to become bigger and bigger and it's helped fuel our growth anyway. But just from a personal point of view, we're trying to do demos instantly, get to go to a real person if you want. We're, we're not about discovery. <laughs> we're, we're the other way around. We're straight into product. Uh, that's probably to our fault, though. Some, some, we get probably too nerdy in, in those 30 minutes. But at the same time, we think it's quite good because I think it's a very fresh uh, approach. So I think people trying to search for these solutions genuinely, they get help when they need it quicker, which is the kind of main, main thing. That's our mission at Sayon is to help that fraud manager from day one not in a week, not in two weeks. It's so refreshing to hear that because I've worked for companies where you've got to chase up the person that's downloaded an ebook or a white paper and the, the conversation is very low value because if they do have questions, they're normally going to be very technical. Then you've got to be the middle person between a pre-sales person and a customer and you're better off just sending his or her questions to the right person through a different channel, through a messenger bot or something. It'd be much more efficient. So that's great to hear. You answered two of my questions is how to get started and set up time. For enterprises, it might be a little bit longer, but it's good to know that you can just get started straight away. The pricing, did you want to talk about that perhaps for a rough kind of guide? Yeah, super simple. We, again, went opposite to market. So we have no install, no setup fees, pure API driven, average transaction, probably about four or five cent a transaction. We've made it transparent. We, we mean it when we say that. It's on our website. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of funny. So my role as uh, heading up commercial and building out to my commercial team, it's actually very small, <laughs> my commercial team, because mainly they're demo engineers. Uh, we'll take it as an offensive, wherever considered an effective sales machine. <laughs> so, so we're all about trying to remove friction from buying process. We're trying to optimize for the buyer rather than optimize as a selling process. So in that sense, we've kept it simple. Yeah, no multi-year contracts, free trials, and de-risk the commercial choice. Because that's the big thing with fraud technologies is it's often muddy to get ROI before you've actually used the product. And a lot of risk and fraud tech needs time to bed in. That's when you derive value. And the reality is there's a, there's a lot, there's good tech out there. Like it's not, it's not bad tech, but the question that's muddier is how do you test without significant investment? So we've tried to approach the problem, at least commercially, from that standpoint, how do we remove those classic barriers where it becomes a no-brainer to get real proof of value or time to value to be really short as well? And so that's the kind of nerdy problems that we like solving from commercial point of view is that side. 
But instead, where most of our commercial efforts are, 90% of it, is actually putting through really good research-led insights via content that are typically around solving pretty granular, nerdy fraud problems that, quite frankly, a CIO isn't going to care too much about. But I can bet you your end user, the fraud manager that's got that hard day job, you know, 24-7 really for a fraud manager, that's the problems that they care about on how to compare tech, how to get past certain proxies, uh, detection, and really granular, nerdy problems. And that's what 90% of our commercial investment is actually around more insight, more insight, more insight, and pushing it out into the world. You've had some good customer successes. Can you talk about some case studies or examples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've tried to document this all on our site. So you can actually go ahead and look at our sound.io forward slash references page. And you can check the, the customers who actually popped on there, put their numbers. They've been kind enough. You know, we're, we're two and a half years old, so we're still young. We see our customers as very much design partners. So they're helping to make a real kind of live roadmap change, which is, I think, hopefully cool for the type of companies that like working with more cutting edge young companies as well. But the thesis is all the same. I won't bother regurgitating because anyone can go look at the site and check out the case studies themselves. But I mentioned the phrase cutting the legs off fraud. And I think, um, I think that, that genuinely is a good way to describe it. So maybe to focus on a couple of sectors. So iGaming, they're online gamblers. They're, the main interest we've really helped there is around this rise of bonus abuse. People literally promo abusing and going from site to site. And this is pretty well documented. The UK is actually one of the leaders in this. If you Google work from home, especially during COVID times, there'll be like dozens of sites that pop up, all legitimately offering ways to do this, which is generally going around gambling sites and taking advantage of all their promos. Clearly for online gamblers, it's not good business to, <laughs> to take those kind of guys. So the classic way you do this is through multi-accounting. Uh, it'll start off fairly innocuous. Uh, it'll start off with Satwant, uh, you know, using your own account and setting up a bunch of accounts. It's all genuine details, so it's fine. But then you'll realize, wait a minute, if I take my wife's, if I take my sister's, my brother's, and then it gets a little bit far flung. And you've got multi-million pound businesses in Europe now going around recruiting total strangers to go use their details. And then the extension of that is getting into kind of the pro world where they're uh, scripting this and they're uh, spitting out and using email providers that have very low authentication points like mail.com, where you can actually generate more and more emails. But then there's a lot of intel from that. Like they were created very recently. They don't have any social footprint. If they do, it's very minimal, like we all talked about. So that's the sort of use case where Tech, fortunately, is just cutting the legs off fraud from that standpoint. It's been extremely strong. But fraud devolves. We're the first ones to say, ironically, being at this cutting edge, we're always on the lookout for the next trends and then adapting our tech to deal with that. But for now, that's an interesting use case. Banking, almost the same thing. Check out what the really cool, funky brands are doing. So we launched live with a really cool challenger bank in Mexico called Albo Bank. And their thing is about new acquisition as well. So they're almost using same customer acquisition strategies from other cool sectors like iGaming, where they're almost giving you an incentive to sign up. I mean, look at Revolut, right? You get a bonus and you, you get a cool features curve card, the same sort of thing. I remember I had to do for Revolut because I wanted cryptocurrency exchange. That's the first time I've convinced five of my mates to sign up for a Revolut account so that I would get crypto exchange trading on my Revolut account. So all these guys are doing similar as other industries like iGaming. What's been cool is our tech has been used for exactly cutting the legs of fraud for those kind of purposes as well. It's been exciting to watch those results. We hope to add more and more case studies as they go live. We're trying to do everything really transparently so that the research is taken out of someone doing consideration because it's all out there publicly. We're big believers in that. 
I went to a seminar and I believe it was the CEO or the CFO of a fintech startup lending money. They said that we're the number one target for fraudsters because we want to get clients and business quickly. We want to ramp up. And that's an invitation to say, come on in to all the fraudsters because to sign things up quickly, they might have less stringent rules or something in the initial few years or maybe the initial 12 months when they launch. So that's great to hear that you're taking action and and helping businesses to mitigate that. Yeah, that's actually an unbelievably important point and nuance there. So we're saying you should, because there's an implicit kind of thing of the more you make the customer jump through hoops, the more secure it is, clearly. Yeah, that's kind of how it works. But what we're saying is there hopefully should be decent tech out there that acts invisibly and doesn't interrupt. And it actually just happens in the background. That's the key. It's invisible. And that's really a key philosophy. So the type of adopters of our technology are the ones at the very forefront of thinking, right, again, it's it's not how do I stem fraud? It's how do I increase business? But at the same time, doing it with hopefully appropriate tech that gives you that assurance. And that's definitely the, the main customers of Seon. They're actually all revenue focused. They're not fear motivated. They're the other way around. They're wanting to up their revenues. Our best partnerships are always based around that. What markets is your solution available in? And what are you looking at for the medium to long-term future? Even in our short life, two and a half years, we're used globally all around the world. We've got customers literally in every market. We just opened up Africa about four months ago. Traditionally, actually, our weakest market was China. Think of it like this. Our key USP is around real-time validation of social networks and messenger platforms like Viber, WhatsApp, et cetera, et cetera. So it's whatever public information is available, public APIs that you can access. China has a very opposite approach. <laughs> they, they are not public APIs. <laughs> they are closed networks. So, so because of that, traditionally, we just didn't bother with China at all. But having said that, a number of months ago, signed a, a very large partner and they've rolled live. That's really opened up that market for us. But I would say traditionally... Were EMEA, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. North America is something that we haven't proactively gone after. We have a couple of merchants there, but nothing proactive at the moment. And then also as a classic startup, we tried to build everything so it is self-serve. It's meant to be the UX is intuitive enough. We failed if you're having to reach out to us. So in that sense, the time zone thing hasn't been too much of an issue. But Yeah, we're not a large PS organization like a lot of the players out there. We're small. We're 35 people, mostly engineers solving this nerdy problem. So the kind of reference to some of our customers call us the stripe of fraud prevention is pretty good, actually, because it's around certain communities like the dev and particularly the the fraud manager community is our key market. The dev community, uh, we've been really friendly with the languages we support. So that's a big part of our growth plan there is around focusing in even more on that and not doing what we're not good at. Jimmy, look, thank you so much. I, I know you, you've got to end because you've got another meeting to go to, but I'd love to continue this maybe as a part two in so, at some point in the future. So before we go, it would be great if you could tell the listeners where they can find you, social, web, maybe online events you've got coming up or anything you wanted to mention. Yeah. So LinkedIn, I think, is always best. My name, Jimmy Fong, is clearly the best. I'm happy to carry on a chat with anyone on there. We're, we're super open. And that's the way that uh, I think all our business is trying to go towards open and transparent about information and hopefully helpful as well. So yeah, LinkedIn is the best for me. Great. And I'll put all the links and stuff in the show notes. So no problem at all. Awesome. Great speaking to you, Satwan. Thanks again. Thanks, Jimmy. Take it easy. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and subscribe to the Payments Show podcast to hear the latest episodes when they are released. If you would like to accept payments faster in your company, 
please head over to digitalmoneylab.com where you can find more information. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode.